The views, thoughts, and opinions expressed in the following program belong solely to the host and guest and do not necessarily reflect those of this radio station, our parent company, advertisers, or affiliates. Welcome to Sharing Our Stories. We share stories of support for individuals in recovery from substance misuse and mental health-related issues. There are numerous pathways to recovery, and each week we welcome powerful leaders and role models who have struggled in drug and or alcohol addiction, have found a pathway to recovery, and who thrive as positive community members with an ongoing vision of success. Join us as we share our experiences, strength, and hope. When the world says, give up, hope whispers. Try it one more time. What's up, Mile High? Coming to you live from the 5280 Podcast Studio, brought to you by Merge Media Academy. This is Sharing Our Stories with Tribe Recovery Homes. My name is Slim, Nani Al-Jalil, and Tomas Hernandez here, along with our guest, Sean Marshall from Colorado Springs in Mile High. If you're just checking in for the first time, Sharing Our Stories is a program about addiction and recovery. Um, But today we're going to switch it up just a little bit because our guest hasn't really dealt too much with a an, an actual addiction for himself other than he said I was addicted to money yes, <laughs> which which is real but I know that um, uh, addiction has touched his family and his life and um, and he's dealt you've dealt with incarceration I have yeah so he's gonna share his story uh, about dealing with incarceration what it's like to to be where he's at now um, and uh, how how addiction and other things uh, became a part of his life and, and how he dealt with those things. So Sean Marshall is going to be our guest before we turn it over to Sean. Tomas Hernandez of Tribe Recovery Homes doing big things, traveling the country, uh, getting back from Vegas where they are opening up, uh, expanding Tribe Recovery Homes to Sin City, Las Vegas. Um, what Tomas does is he runs a sober living and treatment uh, addiction center uh, called Tribe Recovery Homes. You can check them out at triberecoveryhomes.com. And um, they're all about helping people, whether that's in the mile high or around the rest of the country. How you doing, Tomas? I'm doing good. It feels good to be home. I just flew in this morning, then I go right back on the red eye a little bit later. But I needed to come back for this this interview. Um, big, big, big uh, part of me was learning from when I was locked up for what we would call, you know, old timers and guys that are pretty much doing all day like yourself. Um, that's the only way you survive. You learn, you learn how, to, how to move in prison. And it's nice to know that today you're breathing free air. And I, wanted to, I didn't want to miss this story. You know, I, wanted to, I wanted to hear it because it's, uh, you know, those places people don't understand uh, that you've been there. You know, it's, uh, it's, uh, it's a whole different world. It's a whole different family that we have there. And it's... Uh, <sighs> money's an addiction and everything, you know, you can even get addictions in there quickly, you know? If, Absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, not being able to keep your mindset right in the things that, that that's going on. I'm, I'm just really excited to, to hear what you have to say. Um, yeah. About tribe. I'm great. It's I'm blessed. I mean, I've anybody that's on my Facebook, anybody that's on there, it's like my wife was joking the other day because like I fell asleep at like the, like the regular stuff, like we'd go to like the Michael Jackson uh, circus degree. She's having a great time. Keisha's going. You're nuts. not supposed to be in Vegas enjoying yourself, though. Well, this is, you're not out. going no, there no, for all these these shows and so well, on. No, she's she's there, and I'm falling asleep because I've been working all day. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? I've been working all day, but then while you're poolside at the Mandalay. No, no, okay. I live I live in Northtown. Okay, okay, I live I live in the hood. <laughs> so you wake up in the morning, you hear Mexican music. You know what I mean? All right, all right. You know, so it's uh. 
you know, I'm right in the in the middle of, of the, the thick of it. You know, I'm I'm falling in love with the place. Like I still love Denver to the fullest. You know, I'm living living in, in two states. So Mile High, um, Tomas, how much time did you spend incarcerated? I did a cumulative about a little under seven years. Seven years. And Nani, you spent some time also, right? I did. And how how much time did you do? Um, altogether, I did about seven months. Okay, and and I bring these things up because. Um, I just want the Mile High to know that incarceration touched uh, members of this program. Um, I never did any time. That's not to say that I shouldn't have, though, because I've definitely have done plenty of things that should have put me behind bars uh, over the course of my life, and especially especially because of my addiction. But uh, I know we have a lot of people that are listening that are listening from behind bars right now. Um, and... I wanted Sean to be able to speak to you specifically so that if you're, if you're sitting there and you're like, man, I'm lost, I'm confused, I don't know what to do next, um, I'm hoping that the, the words that Sean says can help you uh, start that path of what you're going to do um, when you get out of being incarcerated. So our guest today is Sean Marshall from Colorado Springs. I uh, want to thank you for being here, Sean. Um, and I want to turn it over to you at this time. And Mahai, this is Sharing Our Stories with Sean Marshall. Man, I appreciate it. First and foremost, I definitely want to say thank you for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. I'm extremely humbled and honored Mm -hmm. to even be a part of something like this. I feel a little inadequate in this moment because, like I was telling Nani before we even came on, like there's so many people that are struggling with true addictions. And while you guys were talking, you know, something was coming to mind. Like addiction has so many different faces. You know, the only two that are really commonly talked about is alcoholism and, of course, the normal substance abuse mm-hmm. issues. But really, an addiction is anything that someone is doing excessively, anything that's controlling an individual. And uh, I admire the journeys that all of you have been on. I mean, because it's clear that all of you have overcome something. And everyone, whoever's listening to this, Whatever walk of life they come from, I mean, they're probably enduring whatever it is. They have those vices, whatever you fill in the blank. There's probably something that they're struggling with, some demon that they're battling. And I hope through these stories that you guys are sharing and even the one that I want to share today, that someone will be able to find even more strength to overcome whatever it is that they're going through whether it's an actual addiction with substances or alcohol or, like in my case, money. I mean, again, it, it looks different mm-hmm. depending on who it is that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. Um, and as far as my story is concerned, I've told it so many different times in various ways through literature and interviews. And, I mean, there's a couple of things that, of course, I want to share just to lay the groundwork and give people context as to my background and where I come from and give them understanding of some of the things that I have overcome. But to start, I mean, I had a fairly decent upbringing, bro. I was born and raised in Colorado Springs. And for those that don't know what that city is like, it's a military town. So it's a melting pot of cultures. You see a variety of different backgrounds out there. And for the earliest years of my life, it was normal. You know, I was a good kid, came up in a working class home. I had a mother that loved me dearly. I was her world, center of her universe. And uh, it was just me and her at first, up until I was two. And around that age is when my stepdad came into the picture. And 
in the beginning, it seemed like everything was good. You know, this dude had a restaurant. He owned a restaurant out there, um, was a prominent figure in the community, very successful and was on the rise with his business. So initially when he came into my life, like everything felt real good. You know, I had a lot of the support that I needed. They provided for me in all the ways. Um, But things shifted pretty quickly. You know, uh, early on, there were some things that I witnessed my stepfather do to my stepmom that just didn't sit well with me. There was one night in particular why I experienced seeing them get into a pretty heated argument, him uh, abusing her in front of me. And that just burned a place in my mind. Like ever since that night, like I always looked at my stepfather differently. And after that, of course, my parents separated for a short term and I was happy when my mom made that decision, you know, because my stepdad had thrown out all her stuff and uh, we were gone there for a little while. Got her stuff, moved into the little city because at that time my stepdad had a place in Black Forest and we were away from everything. But my mom and I, we got a little modest place in the city and it was cool. You know, I had her. I felt like it was just me and her. That was my world. She's always been my rock. She's always been my queen. I've always had an abundance of admiration for her. So, you know, everything was peaceful there for a time. And then before you know it, my stepdad weaseled his way back into the picture. However it happened, don't even care. The fact of the matter is he was back. And there was a little bit of resentment that formed. And this was a pattern that began to form because My mom and stepdad, you know, they would go through their phases. There would be these phases where everything was good and peaceful. We would travel, do the family thing, and life seemed normal. And then they would get into it, whatever, they would separate, and it was just this constant thing. He'd be gone, and then he'd come back in the picture, whatever. So, you know, that's kind of the cycle that I would see as a kid. But I never really thought too much of it because my world was baseball. Like, when I was a kid very athletically inclined. Like I played all the sports, basketball, football, but baseball was, that's where it was at for me. Like from the earliest age I can remember, my dreams and aspirations was going to the major leagues. Like, and there wasn't anybody that could tell me differently. Like I knew I was just gonna make it and watching King Griffey Jr. and Cal Ripken and all them play. Like I was like, yep, I'm gonna be on those fields doing my thing. And every day you would see me in some type of sandlot practicing with my friends. Uh, I played competitively all those early years. So that was my focus. So anything that was going on with my parents kind of took a back seat to that focus that I had. And even when it came to school, academically inclined, because my parents, very high standards. Well, I should say my mom. Forget the stepdad. <laughs> didn't really care what he had to say or what he even what expectation he had of me. It didn't matter. But my mom... She wanted the best for me, and she knew that I had to apply myself early on in life. You like to make her proud. Absolutely. That's what I lived for. Mm -hmm. So, you know, she demanded that I get A's and B's. I would get punished if I even brought home a C. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of discipline that was ingrained in me early. Like my mom, there was one thing she used to tell me time and time again when I was a kid. She was like, if you're going to do something, do it right or don't do it at all. Mm -hmm. And I remember that in everything that I endeavored. It didn't matter if it was sports 
of we're talking about schoolwork, whatever. I tried to thrive, not just do it. Like I'm, I'm gonna be the best at whatever. If I'm, a, if I'm gonna do it, I'm gonna go. Do it right. Yeah, I'm gonna go. So that was kind of the early years. You know what I'm saying? It was a lot of sports. It was a lot of me just hanging out with my friends. I was a typical kid, pretty outgoing. I thought I was a lot cooler than I really was, but um, things began to shift a little bit when I got into, I would say like the middle parts of middle school and the latter parts of middle school. And when I say shift, there were just certain thought processes that began to change within me. Like coming up as a black man in America, this is something that I hear black men speak about sometimes, but not enough. When shaping my identity as a young black man growing up, there was an expectation that came with that. You know, there's these stereotypical molds that people assume black men should be like. And it's with all cultures. Like, you see it everywhere. Like, we have labeled so much throughout the years to where we have an idea of what these things should be like when we encounter them. And as a kid, you know, being who I was, I didn't fit that stereotypical mold. You know what I'm saying? I wasn't using all the slang. I was, I was a square. I was a square, period, point blank. And I would get a little flat for that because they're like, ah, you're not, typical, you're not the typical black kid or whatever, whatever the comments were. You know, I knew that I wasn't meeting societal expectations or even my peers' expectations of what I should be or who I should be. Mm-hmm. And these things began to just kind of chip away at me, especially when trying to form my identity. I mean, those are pretty crucial years as a human being. You know, middle school, high school, a lot of exploration, a lot of self-discovery, and you're really trying to figure out who you are. And when you're constantly hearing, like, you're not good enough or you're not this or you're not what people assume you should be, you start questioning that. So hearing that, you know, I'm getting good grades, I'm doing this, you start questioning, like, man, maybe I should dumb it down a little bit. Maybe I should start sagging my pants a little bit. Maybe I should start in some of these roles and characters that people think that I should be like. And I remember little by little starting to assume some of those identities, right? And other influences began to come into my life. Like my stepdad, he had his children, he had a pretty large family, but I had multiple step-siblings because I'm my mom's only child. And a couple of those step-siblings of mine, you know, had pretty sordid past had struggled with addiction, been in and out of jail, um, and had lived some pretty rough lives. And I remember that my mom, in those very, very early years, had tried to keep me away from that as much as possible, especially because in my sphere, there weren't a lot of successful black men. Like, the black men that were beginning to come around later on in life, they were you know, those stereotypical either gangsters or indulging in the lifestyle that most of these young African-Americans are finding themselves in. And that was the case with my stepbrothers when they started coming around. And I remember how much I revered them, you know, regardless of their backgrounds. And there was one in particular, I won't name him, but he was my everything, man. Like he would come into town from Kentucky every once in a while and stay at the house and he had a huge problem with alcoholism, like horrible drunk. And 
an amazing human being, like had the best heart, but when he got drunk, so violent, like he became a completely different person. And there were many like violent altercations between him and my stepdad where I would witness them get into like actual brawls where blood was shed, cops were called, like it got pretty intense. I mean, my my stepbrother would show up to certain events and to the house, faced and the fam wouldn't even know how to deal with him and uh it would always end up with him in jail in some detox unit or us having to restrain him in some type of crazy way and to compound the issue not only was he struggling with alcoholism but he had a crack addiction as well and i remember as a kid just witnessing this firsthand and seeing this but again i revered this dude like this was someone I looked up to. So I would spend a lot of time around this and, you know, take notes about, there were aspects of his character that I wanted to make a part of mine and forming my identity. So were there, there were pieces of him that I took. There were pieces from my cousins that were involved in whatever, all the wrong stuff that I was taking notes of like, oh, maybe that's how I need to be. Let me let me form my identity and be a little bit more like them. Um, and then before you know it, you start getting involved in these other circles that are probably toxic and you start becoming a little bit more like them. And I know by the time I reached those latter parts of middle school, you know, my circle of friends had shifted drastically. You go from hanging out with a whole bunch of kids playing baseball and doing the right things in life to only a couple of them now being a part of my circle. And now the rest of my circle is consisting of, you know, the gangsters and misfits and the more stereotypical types. Um, and I just remember how quickly things begin to shift internally within me, how quickly those priorities begin to shift within me. You know, in school, becoming lesser and lesser of a priority just because it wasn't cool to be smart. Mm -hmm. Whether I was black or not, that just wasn't cool back then, period. I mean, to be educated now, that's something a lot of kids are striving for. But back then, nobody was trying to be, I mean, I don't, today, probably no one wants to be considered a square. But I think kids are probably a little bit more academically inclined now than they were back then. Like, no one was trying to get good grades and all that. Like they were trying to skip school, do whatever. Like at least that's what that little circle that I got involved in was doing. So again, high school is beginning to start and there's a lot of things that I'm beginning to question within myself. I'm starting to let go of certain dreams and aspirations. Um, I'm starting to spend a lot more time with the wrong crowds. And one thing I do know to be true is that the people you surround yourself by, you will inevitably become. And I had it set in my mind by the time I hit high school that being a gangster was cool. Being a gangster was respected. Even the girls kind of affirmed that in my mind because they were venturing towards the bad boys. They were always drawn to them. So I constantly saw that on a daily basis. You see the idiots. I mean, in retrospect, these kids were dummies. But back then, they seemed to be popular. They seemed to have it all together. They seemed to be the ones that got all the attention in school. So again, 
and forming my identity, you start taking aspects of their character. Like, oh, let me, let me take on some of that. Let me be that. Let me, again, sag the pants. Let me assume this certain identity and role. And eventually that started becoming a part of my character. And eventually it got to a point where my whole circle is nothing but these idiots, nothing but these misfits. But again, you don't see these shifts because it happens gradually. And by the time you're deep in it, you don't even realize how far off the path you've really gone. So going into high school, things started to shift in crazy ways. You know, now I'm skipping school. I'm taking these little chances with my friends. You know, they're involved in little petty thefts and doing what we back then saw as these little innocuous behaviors that wouldn't even get us into trouble because they were getting away with it, whether it was shoplifting or whatever. It was nothing to them or smoking for the first time. You know, we're just trying out certain things, experimenting here and there. And those little habits just became a part of me. And you continue down that path because there's no consequences. There's no accountability. So you keep taking these chances. You keep taking these risks. You keep running with these circles of friends because you're having fun. Seems fun. And a lot of the, as far as the substance abuse, didn't get out of control with me. Because even when my friends began to explore with drugs, I explored with weed. Had a crazy encounter the first time. So that didn't get too out of hand. But when it came to my friends and the alcohol that they were consuming or even the other drugs that they were trying, I always had it at the forefront of my mind. Like I would never go down that path because of what I witnessed with my family members and seeing firsthand how alcoholism deteriorated them or how the crack addiction, you know, just messed up the whole way of thinking and being. So I knew I carried that with me throughout life. So when I could have easily started falling into the addictions, the substance abuse, for me, I veered left, but I still fell into these other behaviors that were just as addictive. Because going into high school, I'm starting to delve into this criminal lifestyle. I'm starting to run with the gangs and get involved in all that. And there's also the the fast thrills the easy money that's coming with that. And you get addicted to that power. You get addicted to the instant gratification that you receive living that lifestyle because you live life on your terms. I mean, you don't answer to anyone except maybe your gang affiliates or those that are above you. And you feel like you got it all together because when you step into that lifestyle, the criminal lifestyle, the gang lifestyle, because I, I delve very deeply into all of that, And we don't have time to really get into the weeds of that. Plus, I'm always careful about what I divulge when it comes to my dark past, because I feel like when people share their stories, sometimes when they talk about the gangs that they emerged from and some of the crimes that they committed, like there's this fine line between glorifying that lifestyle and trying to deter people from going down that path. And for me, I acknowledge that it happened but I don't like to get into the specifics because it's like, for what? Like we know by now there's enough of it in the media. People know what that lifestyle is. You can't call it bad and then give it stripes. Exactly. You know what I'm saying? So let's call spade a spade. And we all know it's a dead end road. But 
in the beginning of it, it seems alluring. So I was drawn, I was drawn in. I saw all those instant things that I was talking about earlier, the thrills, the highs, the girls, the money, you get addicted to that. The power, the status, that is equally as addicting as probably these drugs. And people get lost in that. I've seen people really lose themselves in trying to maintain just an image and some type of crazy persona. Hmm. Or people chasing after um, some type of status. It's, it's ridiculous what they'll throw away in those pursuits. And it's the same with the drugs and the alcoholism. Granted, there's probably, well, I know there's physical dependencies that are formed with those things. Whereas with this stuff that I'm talking about, it's more psychological. Mm -hmm. It's still a hell of a battle. All in all, in high school going into that, like I'm in it, I'm in it, knee deep, gangs, crime, taking chances not living at home, like left, I'm in and out the house, 15, 16, gone. I'm like, I'm out. The moment I figured out I could run away without the consequences and not have to deal with my parents lording over me. Plus at that time I was fed up with the back and forth between my mom and my stepdad. Like I was over it and I was over him. My leaving the home was more of me flipping him the bird opposed to my mom. Like I couldn't stand my stepdad. Like just his mere presence pushed me away from home. Like, so as soon as I got the opportunity to leave, gone. Mm -hmm. So as my friends and I are deep in the streets, we're taking all these unnecessary risks. We're doing everything under the sun. You fill in the blank. We probably were doing it. Mm -hmm. From the drugs, cause I did start getting into the cocaine use cause my friends and I were selling at that time. We were selling a lot of cocaine. So we're abusing it, drinking like crazy, barely eating. So of course we fell into that. But me, my thing was chasing the money, chasing the money. So we're getting into armed robberies and that's getting out of hand because nothing is never enough. It's not like in the movies, you hit an armored truck and you got these millions of dollars and then you're good. Mm -hmm. You know, we're doing these little licks that are barely getting us by. And then it just, it continues to escalate. You get away with this, you think you can get away with the next thing, and then it just graduates until eventually you're robbing check cashing spots, banks, or whatever. You know what I'm saying? So it got to a point where we crapped out. We were taking all those chances, chasing, 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 chasing. And eventually I ended up in prison. And this was after many slaps on the hand by the system. Because as a kid, you know, we had caught little juvenile cases here and there, stealing cars. I remember an incident where my friends and I had stolen a car and backed it into a pawn shop on this little smash and grab. We ended up getting caught for that, doing a little time, getting out. But that didn't mean anything to us because that stint that we did, maybe a week inside. When we got out on probation, we barely had to do anything. It was just go to school, keep they up your attendance. Kid gloves. Yeah, exactly. There was no Did not take it so seriously. It yeah, didn't mean nothing to Exactly. You. And we felt You're like really we had great earned speaker, our stripes. So it was easy for you to probably get over on a judge yeah. or somebody too when you're talking to them yeah. and letting them know that, hey, I'm straight and narrow, yep. man. I can do, I'll do exactly what you guys say, lying through your teeth. Yep, exactly. Yeah, you know, the, the resources are so small for kids. Me and Nani were talking about it the other day and it's, Man, I mean, they got to give you breaks because they got nowhere to put you. They're going to put you back with your parents 
put you back in the high school because that's the only babysitter they got. Yep. You know, once it, once the foot, the gill, all these different places are filled up, whatever that options are left, what's left? Gotta let you go. Yep. And it's a catch twenty two. If you're too harsh with the sentencing, or if you handle these kids mm -hmm. in an adult manner and throw them away, you just ruin their potential. So mm -hmm. it's like there has to be the accountability aspect of it, mm -hmm. but how do you do that without ruining that kid's future? Yeah, exactly. So they were, you gotta give it to them. They were trying not they to They were trying. Future, yeah. They were giving me enough rope to hang myself. They're you, like, come on, did, kid. You took it. And I yeah, took it. And I did that. No, you Paso know, County. Yeah. yeah, and they will. They're not playing. They are no. not playing. So it came to that. Got on probation, kept taking the chances, and sure enough, here I find myself uh, incarcerated for a string of robberies out there, and that was the first time I went to prison. And I can't say it was all bad. At 18, and it, mind you, this is this right is, after I turned, you? You just turned 18, 18 years old. And now you're getting your time. And how much time they give you at 18? 10 years. 10 years at 18. 10 years, 10 years was the sentence. My co-defendant and I both received 10 years. And it's crazy because... That summer before I was incarcerated, my boy and I, not the one I was incarcerated with, but a good friend of mine, we were supposed to join the Marines, sign up for the buddy program and everything. And for whatever reason, because I wanted to stay and hang out with my friends for one more summer, I decided not to go. And that was the result. Mm -hmm. Ended up in prison, 10 year sentence, 18 years old, dumb, the farthest thing from what my mother had raised me to be, because again, over those years, I played a role and eventually became that. That gangster that I started portraying myself as being as a kid, I actually became that. Mm -hmm. And I was living with the consequences of that choice and even the addiction to the money and all these thrills that I was chasing. Go to prison, 18. I ended up serving five years on that. And I can't say it was an all bad time because it was very constructive during that five years that I was in. There was a lot of growth that took place. And by the grace of God, I had some amazing mentors that from day one took me under their wing and kind of pulled me away from the horrible elements that exist in prison. And I was sent to Lyman. So at 18 years old, I was sent to Lyman for anyone that doesn't know anything about Colorado's prisons, like Lyman in the early 2000s was a life camp, a lifer camp as they termed it. Mm. So meaning there's nothing but prisoners serving life sentences there, very violent, and most of them were grown adults that had been down for over a decade. Mm. This is the environment that they had thrust me within. But again, stepping into that terrain, from day one, I had these guardian angels watching over me. Mm and some extraordinary men that took me under their wing. They tried to pull me away from all these negative influences and elements, and they tried to mold and shape me into the men that they probably wanted their own children to be like. And they probably saw the potential within me. They probably saw I didn't belong there. I was this lost kid that lost sight of himself, his true identity, who was scared to be himself. And they're like, man, we need to do what we can so that this kid can put this past behind him. So during that time, people poured into me, poured into me. They helped me foster my artistic talents. They helped me educate myself further. And granted, I'd already been educated to some extent, like I took school seriously, 
but had gone down that dark path. So it didn't take much to get me back on that track. They were really just teasing out the parts of me that my mom had already ingrained in me and instilled in me. Mm -hmm. So by the end of that five years, thought I was ready. Thought I was ready to reintegrate back into society and do my thing. And it was 2008 when I was given a second chance at life after serving that five. And when I left, we're sure I was never coming back. But leaving those gates, I was a very prideful individual. Mm. I thought I had it all figured out. I wasn't ready to humble myself and do whatever was truly necessary to stay out. And in the heart of that 2008 recession, that's not the healthiest mentality to step out to. And mind you, I was stepping out to some pretty crazy instability. Like my step pops, he was losing his restaurant, filing for bankruptcy. My mom was unemployed. It wasn't a good situation to step into, but I tried. You know, I was enrolled in the Art Institute, working a couple of jobs. But all in all, I crumbled under the pressures of life. When real life happened to me while I was out there on parole and I was only out six months, I crumbled drastically. And a lot of it came after getting around my old associates again because I was only out a short period before the old circle started coming around again. Old people, places. Old people, things. exactly. Yeah. yeah, you got about like 60 days to put it together, Russ, and just somehow. What was it talking about? Uh, I was watching the Mike Tyson quote the other day when he was talking about, he goes, don't forget who you came with. He goes, because God's going to give you everything that you possibly need in life. You know, that's like your parents and everything like that, how I resonated with it, but unfortunately so is the devil yeah if you think you're gonna outsmart the devil you got another thing coming you have to you have to just go off faith and sometimes faith ain't enough yeah in the reentry world but it is let me retract that you know what i mean faith is is everything and hope to to make any type of comeback but still at the same time how we're treated when we're released you know people say that how they treat the veterans Try being an ex-con yep. and walking out that door. Mm. There's so many stigmas. You yeah. Mm. You serve two sentences because you have the actual sentence where you're incarcerated. And when you try to come out into society, that's a whole nother sentence in itself because the world, these civilians out here, they don't get it. They see you as a pariah. They see you as a danger. They see you as something that just needs to be cast away and discarded. And they don't want to take a chance on you because all they're focused on is your potential for evil opposed to opposed to your potential for good. Yeah. Um, so I experienced that that first go round. But again, because of that lack of humility, me not wanting to ask for help mm -hmm. by those from those that existed that could have given me a hand up. And because I thought I had it all figured out, I crumbled. And because I wasn't, there were certain aspects of me that had not matured over the years. Remember, I went into prison at 18. Mm -hmm. Very childlike. You came out 18. I came out 18. Like, arrested development is a real thing. Yes. So, while I had matured physically, I looked like a grown-ass man. Had the muscles and everything to go with it. And I even articulated myself like a grown adult. Like... Mentally, I was functioning as that 18-year-old kid. Still, when it came to relationships, I'm dealing with these grown women that are now in my life. Like, I'm 18 years old, and they're playing grown games now. 
I'm not ready for that. <laughs> I wasn't even ready for the teenage games, let alone what these grown women were uh, coming with. Yeah. <laughs> so you're dealing with that, and these shortcomings of mine were just exposed very quickly. I end up reoffending another string of robberies, and it was one robbery to try so to take care of this. Exact same thing. Same mm -hmm. thing. Went back to what I was comfortable with. Mm -hmm went right back to the robberies, mm -hmm. ended up back in prison, but this time they were not playing. 45 years is what I ended up getting. Wow. They were like, okay, you wanna be a menace to society? And the DA stated it when they were mm -hmm. going through the whole sentencing process. Like, you're a menace to society. Like, bro, you have this extensive history, just got out of prison for armed robbery, and here you are again indulging in this? Like, come on, bro, we're putting you away for life. Mm -hmm. And they meant that. So I ended up receiving a 45-year sentence, and that's when I hit a wall. But I wasn't even done then. You would think that when I received that sentence, a couple of things. Like, I would have either gotten it, or I would have started questioning some of the decisions I was making, but I still was trying to make it worse. Like, when I received that sentence, opposed to trying to think differently or positively, like, my only thought was escaping or committing suicide or digging a deeper grave for myself. Mm -hmm. And eventually I ended up in solitary confinement for years. I spent over two years in isolation mm -hmm. because of some of these dangerous escape plots and things that I had done in there to try to escape my reality. And that is when I hit my rock bottom. Mm -hmm. It was in isolation when I had to finally, for the first time in my life, take a hard look at myself in the mirror. And that's when I began to take stock of my life, bro. And that's when a true turning point happened for me. Mm -hmm. When I began to question a lot of the decisions I was making, when I began to really dissect myself and all that had gotten me to where I was. And it was all unnecessary. And so much of it was because I was scared to be myself as a kid. I was scared to just be who my mom raised me to be. And a lot of it was because I was chasing after these crazy addictions of mine. Mm -hmm. yeah. Trying to fulfill them. Mm -hmm. yeah. The thrills, the highs, the fast money. For what? And threw my life away behind all of that. And in solitary confinement, it's when I came to terms with that. And I was like, I can't, I can't keep doing this I was like it's kind of done like the damage is done here I am with this life sentence I don't know Your what sentence. I'm gonna do yeah like where do I go from here but at my lowest I was like I can still climb like you know what at that time my daughter was being born because the day of my arrest is when I found out that I had a child on the way mm -hmm. and I had to make a I had to make a change I had to do something different because if I didn't my child was now going to suffer. My mom was going to suffer even more than I'd already made her suffer throughout the years. But now I was more aware of it. I'm actually seeing how my choices are directly affecting all of these other people in my life. And it was having those epiphanies that really made me commit myself to a certain path. And I told myself in solitary confinement, I was like, even if it is my fate to die in prison, 
I can still become a man that my daughter can be proud of. I can still become a man that my mom can be proud of. I can still establish some type of positive legacy for myself and be able to look at myself in the mirror and hold myself, hold my head high. I was like, I have to. I can, I will, and that's what I strove to do. That's a big step because when you're in solitary confinement, that's kind of like where you just say, oh, you know what? F it, I give up. Yeah. That's it, I'm done. But you did the opposite. You said, I don't give up. I'm going to fix this. Yep, fix it however I can. Because when, when I came to terms with the damage I had caused, I devoted myself to rebuilding that mm-hmm. some type of way and to try to deter people from following my footsteps. Right. Whether we're talking about kids, adults, doesn't matter. Anyone that's finding themselves veering astray and off course, like I wanted to somehow be able to touch those lives, let them use me as the cautionary tale. Let them use me as inspiration. And I didn't know what type of form that would take, but I was devoted to use my artistry, whether we're talking about the fine art that I was creating or I eventually became a published author and it was in AdSeg when I wrote my first book. Oh, okay. And I did it because I wanted my daughter to truly know who I was. I was like, I want her through my own words to one day, because at that time we were kind of estranged. I didn't know if I would ever know her or if she would ever truly know me. I didn't know if her family would paint me as some monster that she needed to be separated from. I didn't know if she would have the entire picture. So I was like, you know what? I'm gonna write this book and I'm gonna write it solely for her. Who cares if it ever goes on to become a bestseller? Maybe her and maybe one day she'll have that and see the truth and come to appreciate me. And who knows if she'll share that with somebody else. Maybe that will help the next person. My whole idea was just to one, help her. But if I can help just one person that picks up that book, that's all that mattered. And was that book an autobiography that you wrote? It was. Nice. Yes. Yeah. Changing Faces. Yeah. Yep. And that talked about all of these things that we're discussing and just how those shifts occurred and the reverberating effects of choices. Yes. And it just takes people on that entire journey. Yes. Um, to where they see all the transformations and they see all the shape shifting. Yes. They see the different masks that I wore over time that I eventually shed, mm-hmm. that I eventually came to see as senseless. Yeah. Like, for what? What was I taking all those chances for? Mm-hmm. And, you know, ultimately, after I devoted myself to this path that I'm on in solitary confinement, like, again, so, much, so many positive things began to happen, you know, and reconnecting with my family and healing within, healing those traumas within. That was the question. So, like, we had... Uh a guest on last week and he was talking about solitary confinement and the turn you either go crazy or you get angry and it seems to be there's a third turn that you found positivity with family and found kind of like that flower in a dark tunnel yeah. still still growing um tell us about that how did that happen how can you sit in the middle of darkness and find light and how do you Get your sentence turned down from 45, 47 years? 45 years. 45 years. Mm -hmm. So the first side of that, or the first part of that, 
finding my North Star, as I call it, it started with my daughter, Look Beyond Myself. When I recognized that I was living for more than just me, that was enough to give me the strength to begin climbing out of that pit. Now, I don't advise anybody to put all their stock in something outside of themselves because I think that true growth begins with you loving yourself. It begins with you pouring into yourself. Like you can't love properly until you love yourself properly. You can't give something valuable or very meaningful until you learn to really invest in yourself. Like you'll never have that invaluable thing to give to anybody else if you don't even know how to make those sacrifices to yourself. And that's the bottom line. So initially, I had to find that strength externally. I had to look at my mom, my daughter, and these outside sources for inspiration, or even my past mentors of mine, how they overcame imprisonment or endured life sentences. I drew from that. That's how I begin to crawl out of that despair and hopelessness and begin to devote myself to something bigger than myself. And when I found that strength, then that's when I started pouring into myself, building myself internally, and then getting back on the workouts and start getting the physical strength, the external stuff, all that stuff. So internally, externally, simultaneously, all this growth is happening. And that was how I got through it, bro. Like when you ask that, just identifying those things that are supremely important to me in life mm -hmm. and really committing to that. Cause people do that all the time. Like, yeah, family's important, but it doesn't really propel them in any type of meaningful way. Yeah. Like that kept me going. That's the only thing that kept me alive. I literally contemplated suicide. God knows how many times and even tried it a number of times, but couldn't quite bring myself to do it because every time I would draw that razor across my wrist, or every time I would put that noose around my neck, there were a couple of faces that would always appear in my mind. Hmm. My mom and my daughter, yeah. every single time. And I was like, I can't do it. Hmm. And it was because of them that I came out of darkness. And again, I found myself on this path trying to inspire others. So while in prison, I was like, this might be my life. I accepted that I could probably and would probably die in prison. But I was like, let me help as many as I can. So to answer your question, I went on to start mentoring a lot of my peers in prison. I started teaching various programs inside of prisons. I started painting various murals, like using my artistry and all the ways to inspire those that were entrapped. So we're, we're talking about Lyman Correctional Facility, right? So now I'm at Sterling. Okay. At, yeah, I was at Sterling when I got this uh, ad seg time. It was okay. in solitary. Okay, so were you in the clemency program? How, how did you give back the, all this time? So that came after years of investing in myself. And there's certain organizations that started getting behind me, certain organizations that I was networking with. DUPI was a big one. Um, but... As I'm doing all this stuff, there's various people out here in the free world that were hearing about this work that I'm doing. One of which was this amazing lady, my angel, Kristen M. Nelson uh, from the Sparrow Justice Center. She had kept hearing my name in these circles, reached out to me and was like, hey, I don't know if I'm going to be able to represent you. But at the very least, I want to have a conversation with you and meet you. 
she comes and meets me and within minutes is questioning like, why is this dude still in prison? This is crazy. Like, and you have a life sentence. You're serving more time than most murderers for robbery. No one was physically harmed. Like, this is crazy. So she was like, I'm going to get you out of prison. Her team got a hold of my case. And for about three years, they constructed this phenomenal clemency argument and packet that was ultimately sent to the governor's office. And by this time, Governor Polis and his administration had already been hearing whispers about Sean Marshall this, Sean Marshall that. And I was one of these lead candidates in this huge rat race. Everyone was trying to get clemency from the governor uh, before his new term. Mm -hmm. And yeah, they pushed my packet to the governor's office. One of his representatives wanted out of curiosity whether she was vetting me. I don't know. Ended up coming to visit me, kind of fill me out to see probably if I was what all the hype was saying. Yeah. And uh, (laughs) shortly thereafter, I'm getting the call from the governor's office and they're like, bro, you're going home. And they cut that 45 year sentence down to an immediate release. What was that day like? Oh man, there's no describing it. Like it's indescribable, bro. It's just a weightlessness. That's the best way I'm always able to describe it. Like, so uh, our listeners probably would love to expl- be explained exactly what clemency is. So just a little piece of it. You know, you had Hickenlooper, then you had, you know, then you have uh, Paulus, and there were stipulations on both ones. It got a, a little bit better with Paulus. The, yeah, he's. There was- Definitely more progressive than Hickenlooper, but essentially all clemency is, is you asking the governor for mercy, some type of reprieve. And he has sole authority to release anyone Mm -hmm. on any given day. Like if he feels someone is deserving of another chance at life, he can right now at this very moment sign off on documentation without even conferring with whomever. He has that sole authority to get you out of prison. So with the clemency process, it was just this lengthy process that Clements or that uh, Governor Polis had established where he had a board in place to where people were applying. This board would vet these individuals to see if they were even worthy of being considered. Mm -hmm. And then they would give a recommendation and then Governor Polis could either go with that recommendation or not. Mm -hmm. The bottom line is he had the authority to sign off on these papers. Mm -hmm. So they had this streamlined process Mm -hmm. in place to where many inmates are filing for it, but it's a very rare thing. You know, you might have 100 people or more filing for clemency and only two of them get granted it. Like It's a very busy process. And I was just sent an application to to join that board and had a conversation with the person in the governor's office about exactly what it would be expected. It's uh, it's, uh, it's a vetting process because you you can make a mistake. Yeah. And and release somebody that, even though the case looks good, they're not they're they weren't the, the candidate that needed to be out. Yep. And reoffend. Um, but we've had a great track record in the state of Colorado of clemency. We got we've got um, man. Um, there's a lot of you out there that are doing very good work. Mm-hmm. Very good work. There's in different organizations from Second Chance Center to Servicio Stella Rasa. Um, Denver Dream Center. Denver Dream Center. Yeah, we got, uh, man, one of my favorites, Eric Leitner. Yeah. Yeah, he's- uh, He raised me. Yeah, he's, 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 he's the man. I mean, I remember when his case went down, you know. Um, Brian Lee, all of those yeah, brothers. Exactly. They uh, raised me. Yet, um, 
Eric Schleitner's family, uh, they, they reached out to me um, and I sent them towards Second Chance Center. They already were granted the clemency situation, but he got, I got the honor to, to employ him on a, on a grant and he's still at Second Chance Center and whew, thriving. Yeah, you know, so it's, uh, it's a process that works and I just wanted to let everybody know, all our listeners, that Clemency is not taken lightly by the people that are granted clemency and also at the same time making that decision to help the governor is a very serious matter. It's, it's, uh, if you have a family member like, I want to do that too, get ready to strap on your seatbelt because that process right there to get to the end game is, uh, is going to go through a lot of hands yeah, and a lot of knowledge and a lot of investigation and it's something that, it's a gift that, I couldn't imagine, like Slim was just talking about. I could not imagine how mm-hmm. he felt. Mm-hmm. Yeah, bro. It's. I felt like life had been breathed back into me. Mm-hmm. And granted, I found my purpose behind bars. Again, I had accepted my fate, and I was ready to live with that, accept the consequences of my actions um, and the life that I had created for myself, because that's what it boils down to. Like, mm-hmm. I destroyed my life, period. Mm-hmm. I accepted that. Um, but when I received clemency, like you just, you feel fulfilled. Like you're like, all right, I'm ready. And this time I knew I was ready. (laughs) Whereas that previous time, like there were still questions in my mind to whatever extent, probably subconsciously, because I told you I was very prideful, thought I had it all figured out. But this time there was the humility. I was willing. It didn't matter what I had to do when I got out. I didn't care if I was going to be working at McDonald's. Did not give a damn. That's a good question. Tell everybody who you are today. So right now, I mean, I'm still a wandering soul to some extent, but I'm a thriving artist. I'm out here in the community tattooing full time, running a shop. Uh, I work now as a staff member at the Denver Dream Center. So I am in a position to where one of my responsibilities is now walking side by side with those that are previously incarcerated and that are coming into society. I get the chance to help them find the resources that they need to be their best selves. Like that's a part of my job responsibilities. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm aligned with all of these amazing people out here that are doing the work that are really pouring into individuals like myself, you, Nani, all these people that have these paths Mm -hmm. that society has more or less just given up on, Mm -hmm. we are there to empower them. You know what's crazy is people have no idea. When you say that old terminology, that old saying, when in Rome, I've literally seen pretty much every major cities recovery and Colorado is probably the most progressive re-entry recovery area in the nation. That's for real. I, you should have seen, man, my mentor, my biggest mentor in, in this industry is Hassan Latif. <laughs> I was you know, just with there, him. But there yeah. is opportunity here in Colorado when you yeah. come out of prison to, to re-enter society. Exactly. And like, I don't, I, my best friend is right now dealing with that in California. He just yeah. got out of prison and I, I cry for him. We were talking earlier today and I cry for him because the opportunities that are here to help get him re-entered, get him a job, get him his own place and get him moving are not there. 
They're not, they're not there. He's not. counting on friends and family right now to kind of get that ball rolling. So the fact that it's here um, and in and, and such abundance in, in Colorado is amazing. Yeah. You know, we're, we're running out of time, but I want to wrap it up with this. You're working for the Denver Dream Center as one of your jobs on top of being a phenomenal tattoo artist. Um, and there's people that are listening that have just got out of prison or are sitting in prison and and they need help. And, and like we said, there's, there's opportunity here. Uh, I want to give them the ability to reach out to you at the Denver Dream Center. So how do they do that? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's easy to get our information. Denver Dream Center will come up there. And again, we're not the only organization. No, no, no. no. Second Chance Center, the Denver Dream Center. But speak, those of you so that you know. need to <laughs> come to the Denver Dream Center, we're right there, 2165 Curtis Street. We are embracing everyone with open arms. Uh, well, I just said, say uh, Pastor D can't play basketball and he'll come out, he'll come out his office real quick <laughs> yeah. so, they can, so if they contact the Denver Dream Center and they ask for Sean Marshall they can find you there Sean Marshall Lonnie Griego yes come come see us Pastor, Pastor B because I mean one thing you said earlier when you got out of your five years you got back into the same circle of friends and that's what ended you up back there for 45 years Part of it, yeah. You know, um, but I think that if you had had something like the Denver Dream Center, oh, they've been that was there. In they've your been life. amazing, bro. The yeah. first week, but if I they was had been out. there that first time when you got out after that five years, they're probably they're not probably, but you know, I'd like to think that there wouldn't have been another. Hey, you got forty five more to go now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so if we can just, you know, get that message out to somebody that, hey, you're out. Now you're like, what do I do? I can't find a job. I can't seem to find housing. Call the Denver Dream Center. Call the uh, Second Chance Center. Call one of these places. Talk to Sean. The resources are available. And that's the main thing I can't stress enough is because many of us, the formerly incarcerated, think that there's scarce resources out here. It's just not true. Mm -hmm. Like right now, we are in an era and a time where society's views of criminals is kind of shifting. They know that we need to allocate these resources in better ways. And they're ready to pour into the least of us in different ways and guide us and help us. And it's there. If you're willing to humble yourself, Mm -hmm. because that's another thing. You mentioned that. You You said that. I'd like to give out one gift that a lot of people don't get. You are being heard by a very large amount of listeners right now. Tell us about your new venture, your opportunity, where your shop is, how they can get over there to get a hold of you. We'd love to promote that as a gift on this show so we can hit the ground running for you and your partner and get those tattoos going. Cause I appreciate that, man. Yeah, there's a team of us up there, Skin Deep Expressions. Uh, we're up there in Southlands. To reach me, I mean, do you want me to get my phone number out? Yeah, yeah, come okay, on. Okay, to reach me, 303-263-0604. Come see us, man. We do it all. Realism, it doesn't matter. All Whatever right. you want, we got you. Skin Deep Expressions. Skin Deep Expressions. Southland. It's up in, in Southlands Mall. All, yep. right. all right. Come see us. We do piercings. We got this amazing piercer, Angel. Mm-hmm. She's doing her thing. All we right. got an amazing team. You've got multiple reasons to contact Sean. You can contact him for a tattoo. <laughs> yeah. Or you can contact him because you just got out and you're trying to figure out how to reenter into society and make it a much smoother transition. Yes, sir. Sean, thank you so much for coming in, man. Thank, thank you for you speaking. Guys. Thank you for sharing. Uh, thank you for your honesty and your openness. And I appreciate that very much. And uh, I only got two tattoos, man. We're going to have to talk. Yeah, we're, we're going to have to, talk. to change that. We're going to have to talk and see if I can get some more. I don't need any of these these bad tattoos like Tomas has, though. <laughs> <laughs> Tomas is a mess. You 14 to get here. 
Yeah. Is that when you started tattoos at 14? Yeah. You got your first one? Yeah. Man, Sean, when you get your first tattoo? Uh, I think I was about 17. Okay. Yeah. I didn't start till I was 30. Mitch. I was like 40 something. <laughs> <laughs> I told my mama was a pirate. It was a zigzag man. I already got it covered the, up. The zigzag. Yeah, she was like, "What do you? What do you got that?" I was like, "It's a pirate. I'm a Raiders fan." Uh-huh. <laughs> she was like, it's the what? zigzag man. All right, uh, Mahai. This is sharing our stories. Our guest, Sean Marshall from Colorado Springs. You can find this program on our Facebook page. That's facebook.com slash SOS sharing our stories. Also at jammin1015.com and flowdenver.com. And of course, we're on your radio every Sunday morning at 7 a.m. Find the program on our YouTube page. Like, subscribe, all of that. All right, help us share these messages of addiction and recovery. And as you saw today, it's not always about addiction. Um, Well, I guess it is still about addiction. Addiction to a, a fast lifestyle. Absolutely. Um, but most importantly, it's about helping people here in the Mile High and, and around the world. So, Sean, thank you again, my man. I appreciate, appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you guys so much. Mile High, we'll see you again next week right here for sharing our stories.